You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Double poles, triple poles. They often dot and blight the landscape in Oahu's neighborhoods and across the state. So whatever happened to the plan to begin removing those utility poles? While their removal has not been a priority in the past, the Public Utilities Commission put pressure on Hawaiian Electric and Hawaiian Telecom years ago to take stock of who owned what in an inventory of some 120,000 poles. An audit found a backlog of about 10,000 double poles that need to be dealt with. In 2018, the utility companies agreed to have a, uh, to a plan to have Hel- uh, Helco uh, buy the poles owned by Hawaiian Telecom and commit to a 10-year removal plan. We asked for an update. Here's Jim Kelly, Vice President for Communications for Hawaiian Electric Company. So when we took over most of the utility poles that people see, that was uh, back at the end of 2018. So starting in 2019, uh, we did a, an audit, an inventory, and, and determined that there were about uh, 9,400 double poles, meaning poles that you know, one of the poles had been damaged, and when we went out and replaced it, put a new pole right next to it, but did not remove the damaged pole. And since 2019, we've removed about 2,500 of those poles, and so we still have the 6,500 more to go uh, for those polls that we counted back then, and the work is progressing. We uh, committed to the Public Utilities Commission that we would get rid of the backlog um, within 10 years, so we're coming up on five years, and we have a ways to go, but we feel like we're at a pretty good pace and uh, will accomplish what we committed to do. Do we have a system where we're keeping track of the the new double poles that are coming up? <laughs> yes, we, we have a process, and I can explain a little bit about that. We use, mainly we use contractors, outside contractors do this work. And what we do is we really try to put a priority around areas where there's either safety issues or issues where where we're going to be going out and doing work in a particular area anyway so that while we're out there this is work that we can get done at the same time and so there is a prioritization that goes into it we really try not to do one-offs you know one pole here one pole there because that's not a very efficient way to work we were really doing pretty well and at a pretty good clip of six seven hundred pole removals per year up and through most of the pandemic but in the last year just given shortages of everything most especially staff we've uh, slowed down a bit and we really are hoping to pick it up again in 2023 to pick up the pace and uh, kind of get back to where we were before so the backlog when you say we've got about 6800 left to tackle this is statewide not just oahu Yes, that's correct. But most of the poles are on Oahu, most of the double poles. The reason why I thought of this was because, you know, with the winds, uh, you know, I just wondered what kind of shape that some of these older poles were in and, and if they would go down in the winds. We wouldn't leave up any poles that were clearly presented any kind of a hazard. Um, and so the issues with the wind really don't affect double poles any more than they do other poles. I think the main thing that we really try to do is, you know, obviously safety is a, is a priority, and, and we wouldn't leave anything up that could potentially be a hazard to the public. You folks were able to buy the polls from, from Hawaiian uh, Telecom, so those polls are under your, your jurisdiction, but we still have a ways to go. Yeah, and, and like anything, nothing is easy. Part of the issue is that a lot of the double polls that are still out there, they require both Hawaiian Electric and Hawaiian Telecom to work on them to remove the equipment and move uh, equipment from the old pole onto the new pole. And so coordinating with um, Hawaiian Telecom and also some of the other technology providers that are on poles, um, that makes it more complicated probably than, than if it was just us. We're really right now focusing on poles that are solely owned and and solely have equipment that's Hawaiian electric equipment on it, and that makes it easier for us to go out and just take care of those. 
Okay, but then the poles, let's say, where the city and county has a light fixture on there, that's another story. Yeah, and we have to coordinate with them as well. Again, we're trying to mix metaphors here. We're trying to go after the low-hanging fruit of double poles. Okay. Uh, The ones don't have other entities' equipment on them and are fairly easily accessible and that we can get at without, you know, disrupting traffic. And those are the ones that we're going after. But there are, I think, as we move through the rest of this decade, that's when we're going to be getting at the ones that I would say are probably a little gnarlier and are going to require coordination with Hawaiian Telecom and others do the work. When we originally took over the polls at the end of 2018, we had an estimate that there were like 16,000 double poles out of like 150,000 statewide. Mm -hmm. So about 10%. And again, the the vast majority of them are on Oahu. We hired a contractor to go out and do an an audit to actually see how many poles there were that were in that condition. And the good news was just through that work, we were able to knock off almost 7,000 poles. And it turned out there were only, I think, about 9,400 double poles. So that made the job easier on our end, at mm-hmm. least in terms of knocking down the total number that had to be fixed. So we are making progress. Slow progress, yeah. but there is some progress. Yeah, there's absolutely been progress and uh, really want people to, to keep the faith. I mean, it's, it's one of the challenges we've had this last year especially is, is staffing. We're down about 100 positions in our operations area, including the area that deals with polls and it's just real challenging out there to be able to fill the positions that, that we have. And we know a lot of other businesses are, are confronted with the same thing. We just really appreciate people's patience on this. We know that it's, uh, it's not something that people like to look at. And we're going we're gonna to keep moving ahead until we get it done. We've been hearing from Jim Kelly, Vice President for Communications at Hawaiian Electric Company. He was providing an update on the status of the removal of double and triple utility poles across the state. We are nearing the halfway point of a 10-year agreement to tackle the backlog of close to 10,000 double poles. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Missouri's state legislature wants to take control of the St. Louis Police Department to better fight crime, they say. Critics disagree. The entire battle over local control of police in St. Louis is really a fight for political power, and it's being driven by a police union that doesn't have that power in the city of St. Louis. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2... decision on the controversial Big Island biomass plant is finally in. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Paula Dobbin has a story on Hohonua and the long-awaited Hawaii Supreme Court ruling that came down late yesterday. Paula joins us this morning. Hi, Paula. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Good. So, oh gosh, everybody was waiting to hear what the final word was going to be, uh, and it, it was not good for Hohonua. No. Um, the court of uh, basically ruled uh, five to four, um, saying that the Public Utilities Commission did not make any errors when they um, rejected a amended power purchase agreement for Huhonua back in May. Um, they found that you know the PUC did its job of protecting the public's interests and that the, uh, the air pollution and the higher energy costs that uh, Huhonua would uh, would create just simply didn't pan out for the public. 
And so uh, I'm sure those that were, uh, you know, trying to shut this plant down or keep it shut down uh, were hailing the decision. But I'm sure it's a real blow to the company because it spent a lot of money to uh, put this plant up. Yeah, um, the company issued a statement saying it's disappointed in the decision, uh, that it's weighing its options uh, and things of that nature. Um, They did note that the plant now is um, 100 percent completely built. in previous press releases, it was like in the 90% range or something. So I guess they've been working on it, um, hoping that things would go in their favor. But, um, you know, $520 million later, it uh, doesn't look like this plant is any closer to firing up than it was back in, you know, 2012 when it first started trying to get the permissions to, to operate. Yeah, and I mean, they initially got the okay from the PUC, um, but then um, that got reversed. Yeah, it's been a really long, complicated tale, Catherine. I, I don't want to go into all the, you know, the different steps because we would be here for like over an hour. But um, yes, at one point they did get a power purchase agreement, um, you know, approved by the PUC. But then um, a group called Life of the Land um, sued, you know, and said that um, they really didn't take a good enough. Uh, the PUC didn't take a good enough analysis to the greenhouse gas emissions that the plant would. Um, you know, would release. And so, um, you know, it, it ended up going to the Hawaii Supreme Court. And back then they, they tossed it back to the PC and said, yes, you really do need to look into the greenhouse gas emissions this plant would, um, you know, would create. And so, that, you know, they did that. And then they also took into, into account, you know, the higher um, monthly bills that utility payers would have to fork over. And you know, in the end, uh, it just didn't pencil out. And, um, you know, in the final, in one of the final sentences of the ruling, I don't have it in front of me, but, um, you know, the, the justice said that, um, you know, what may, what might have made sense back in 2012 um, might not make sense in, you know, 2023. So um, that's kind of the upshot. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess the bottom line is they're saying, look, we're in a climate emergency. And uh, the opponents for Huhunua, who, you know, who didn't think that a tree burning plant made sense, <laughs> uh, you know, they're saying, uh, you know, well, that they're glad that uh, the, the high court agreed with them. Yeah, I mean, you know, all along Huhunua was saying that it could be, um, you know, not only carbon negative, but it could be um you know, it could actually help the environment because they, they had this plan um, to, like, you know, uh, replant trees and um, things of this nature. But the PUC found their their reforestation plan speculative at best, and the high court seemed to agree with them. Um, and it, it did seem that, you know, the, the concern about um, climate change and the, and the climate emergency we're in and and the pressure that's on, you know, the PUC to take all these things into account um, really had sway with the justices. So, um, you know, what happens next uh, remains to be seen. Um, you know, they they are a very litigious company. So, you know, some say this might not be the final nail in the coffin. You know, maybe they'll maybe they'll um, you know try to get the the U.S. Supreme Court to take a look at it. Uh, who knows? And then, of course, there's also the the internal fight between Huhonua and Hawaiian Electric, um, you know, they they have this uh, federal litigation that's kind of on hold. Um, you know, Huhonua sued Hawaiian Electric a few years ago because Hawaiian Electric canceled the, the contract, and um, you know they agreed to kind of they had a confidential settlement, and that said, well, we'll you know put the litigation aside as we try to get a new power purchase agreement through the PUC. Now that that's not happening, it'll be interesting to see if Huhonua revives its uh, federal lawsuit against Hawaiian Electric. And they're they're hoping, you know, if they do that, they they feel that they're entitled to like at least $1.6 billion in damages from Hawaiian Electric. Well, we'll have to see what happens. But thank you so much, uh, 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 Paula, for the story. Sure. Take care. We've been talking to Paula Dobbin for today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're taking a look at the origin of the Queen Liliuokalani Trust. Over a century ago, the Queen created a deed of trust, which established both the legal framework and financial backing for an institution dedicated to ensuring the welfare of orphaned Hawaiian children. A few years later, Liliuokalani amended her original wording to include impoverished children as well. In the deed of the trust, she stated all the property of the trust estate, both principal and income, shall be used for the trustees for the benefit of orphan and other destitute children in the Hawaiian Islands, the preference given to Hawaiian children of pure or part Aboriginal blood. Queen Liliuokalani died November 11, 1917, and to this day, the institution she created in her deed continues on through the work of the Liliuokalani Trust and Children's Center. We told you the deed of the trust date backs over a century ago, so for today's quiz, we want you to tell us the exact year. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. Support local news coverage on HPR. The world's largest volcano, Mauna Loa, has erupted for the first time in nearly 40 years. So there's no civil defense warnings, no public or police warnings at all. Mauna Loa eruptions have typically all started in Mokua Veo Veo Caldera, and then about half of them have moved into a rift zone, and that's exactly what we saw for this eruption. We have Big Island Mayor Mitch Roth on the line now. We've uh, been going out to our community, we've been educating our community, we've, we've been working with our partners. We've actually been doing that for the last couple of months and so we're in a pretty good sense of preparedness but you can never be too prepared. I wasn't frantic or anything like that because we were already kind of expecting it. I already had some things semi-packed because over time we've been told that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We'd like to steer people towards the uh, Hawaii Civil Defense website. There's a hazard map. We get that information up very quickly. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. The issue of using agricultural land for vacation rentals or overnight camping is a thorny subject. The White Supreme Court has been weighing a couple of cases for years now. It just recently ruled on a Maui case and upheld a land use commission decision that struck down the use of special permits for a commercial camping development in Lahaina. We talked to Dan Ordenker, uh, executive officer of the Land Use Commission, yesterday afternoon about this decision. This whole mana foundation wanted to build overnight commercial camping facilities on some agricultural land, some highly valuable agricultural land in Lahaina. The neighboring community association objected to that, saying that that type of a development wasn't allowed on agriculturally districted land. The um, community association therefore asked the Land Use Commission to render an opinion as to that issue. The Land Use Commission found that since 205.4.5A6 specifically excludes overnight camping, that a special permit could not be used to circumvent that rule and allow for camping in the agricultural district. 
we found for the community association, the Holmano Foundation appealed, the, the Supreme Court upheld our decision. So what does this mean to that project? They can file for a district boundary amendment if they still want to do it, but they can't use a special permit. And is this the only place that you know of where this has come up? Well, special permits are all on agricultural land. The difficulty that we've had in the past and what this case resolves is that there was a belief by some landowners and um, by some of the county planning departments that because special permits allowed for almost any type of use that didn't specifically fit into agriculture, you could grant a special permit even though in another part of the statute, in this case 205, 4.5, it was specifically prohibited. Okay, but the Supreme Court just said no. <laughs> the Supreme Court said no, that, that you cannot do that, um, that if it's specifically prohibited in Chapter 205, in one section, that you can't use the special permit process to go around that. And then what's involved in uh, changing the, the boundaries? District boundary amendment is a much more involved process than a special permit because they would have to come before the Land Use Commission, ensure that they had done all their environmental reviews, and then present their evidence to the Land Use Commission as to why this particular piece of land was better off in the urban district than in the agricultural district. That requires a contested case hearing and evidence to be taken. So far more extensive process. Well, it's not really that extensive of a process because... The same requirements are there for a special permit at the county level. They still have to present all their evidence and so forth and so on. The difference is that the Land Use Commission has to hold a contested hearing based on and make a decision based on the evidence that was presented in relation to the public policy as to what's the best use of the land. This issue of using ag lands for vacation rentals or camping has been a real problem on different islands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a big deal. It's a festering problem. Um, the Land Use Commission kind of takes the position that if it's an urban use, it should be in the urban district. The way the special permit language reads is that if it's an unusual and reasonable use in the agricultural district. So, you know, that, that's really meant for things like rock quarries. I mean, that, you're not going to put that in the urban district. Nobody's going to build houses next to a rock quarry. Or uh, on, the, on Oahu, it's been used for Waimanalo Gulch. Um, it's also been used for solar farms. A special permit is appropriate for a solar farm. The idea is that special permits are associated with things that have a limited time frame. In other words, this is going to be over in 20 years. This is going to be over in 25 years. And it doesn't really belong in the urban district. Nobody would want to live near it. The commission's feeling, the commissioners feel that if it is really an urban district, like a school or a home or, or a series of homes or a vacation rental, it really belongs in the urban district. And if you want to do it, you shouldn't ask for a special permit. You should ask for a district boundary amendment. You know, Chapter 205 is set up to keep things where they belong. And having vacation rentals in the agricultural district is a concern. Now, if you have a legitimate farm dwelling, you know, where the farm dwelling is associated with agricultural activity and you have an extra room and you want to make some additional income, that's a slightly different story. But I'm not sure that that's the way the special permits have been used or are being used right now for vacation rentals. I think you've got that issue of, I think they call them gentleman farms, where their express interest is not really predominantly agriculture. It's a large house with maybe a little agriculture. So and that's another thing that the commission is concerned about is is the big picture with regard to building homes on agricultural land. I mean, you're allowed, and there, there's good reasons to allow this, to subdivide agricultural lands down to one or two acres, depending on the county. You know, that was designed so that farmers who have a large family and, you know, that they're, they're going to pass away can or they pass away, can pass on their farms basically to their kids without having to worry about the, the farm coming apart and them being gone. I mean, there's a legitimate reason for that. However, 
there are abuses that have occurred. I mean, there's the, the running joke that we hear all the time about, oh, you know, I'm building a farm dwelling on agricultural land. I've got to go. Mm-hmm. You know, and, but the, that, that's not really what the statute was intended for farm dwelling. If you're going to build a, a dwelling on agricultural land, it was intend to be, intended to be legitimate, associated with legitimate agricultural activity. Well, so we have this ruling in this particular case with overnight camping. You have a second case on farm dwellings that's still pending? That, that appeal is actually much, much more complicated, if okay. you can imagine that. What happened with that case was that the county was amending its ordinance with regard to the definition of a vacation rental, and they changed the number of days that you can rent a farm dwelling or, mm-hmm. or any other facility and have it qualify as a residence as opposed to a vacation rental. Right. So short-term rental versus long-term rental. Right. And that was what the argument was between the county and the landowner. We were asked to render an opinion on whether transient vacation rentals were allowed in the agricultural district. And the simple answer to that that the commission gave was no, transification rentals are not allowed in the, in the agricultural district. But the argument, to a certain extent, remains what is the definition of a transient vacation rental? Okay, but that's still working its way uh, through the process. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's really not something the Land Use Commission would be overwhelmingly concerned about because once we have a definition, the courts give us a definition of what a transient vacation rental is, then... You know, we already know that transient vacation rentals aren't allowed in the agricultural district. So whatever that definition is, that's what our opinion will be. But the the bottom line on this particular case, on this particular win for the permits, it's just back to square one for the foundation. If if they want to pursue this, they've got to get the wanna, boundary yeah, changed. If they want to pursue this facility, they, they have to, they would have to apply for a district boundary. Okay. Your reaction when you heard that they ruled in your favor? A, a big yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, this is one of those things that we have come in front of us in different forms time and time again. It's always been our position that, and the Supreme Court seems to have fought, agreed with us, that if, it's not, if it says it's not allowed, you can't get around it by, with using a special permit. And this kind of puts that whole argument to rest that because of the language in Chapter 205 with regard to special permits, that you can do almost anything you want under a special permit or apply for almost anything you want under a special permit, regardless of whether or not there's a a different section that prohibits it. And that kind of ends that argument. That was Dan Orodenker, Executive Officer of the Land Use Commission. He spoke to us about a Hawaii Supreme Court decision that struck down a plan to allow overnight camping on agricultural lands near Lahaina, Maui, using a special permit process. Uh, Orodenker says Ho'omana Foundation could try to get the boundary designation changed. Support for HPR comes from Aloha United Way Women United, committed to strengthening Hawaii's communities, focusing on education, poverty prevention, and financial stability for women. AUW.org slash women united. On the next Fresh Air, veteran character actor Clancy Brown. He's been working since the 1980s and has played some memorable villains over the years in movies, including Shawshank Redemption, Highlander, and coming out later this month, John Wick 4. But he may be best known as the voice of Mr. Krabs on the animated show SpongeBob SquarePants. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point...
And we stay on Maui for our next segment. Today, HBR Sabrina Bowden joins us. So what story do you have for us today? Good morning, Catherine. So there's a group of community members on Maui who are trying to help those with cancer who may also be experiencing homelessness. So Linda Popolo is the executive director of the Pacific Cancer Foundation on Maui. And she started her role back in June of last year. And by October, she started seeing a trend. Uh, She would see homeless cancer patients many in GAP groups coming in for help with insurance and other needs. And the Pacific Cancer Foundation isn't a clinical operation, so they're not dealing with anything truly medical. They're more like lay navigators helping people figure out insurance and stuff like that. Mm. So the Pacific Cancer Foundation has found that doctors are unable to treat many homeless cancer patients because of unsafe living conditions. My staff began to notice that there were so many. We had it. We had. They identified right immediately, like about ten um, patients that were homeless. And the real problem is, it's not that the doctors won't treat them; it's the doctors can't treat them if they don't have running water or respite, a place to stay, lay down, a plate, you know, a bathroom to, you know, with running water and be able to go to the bathroom and. You know, those things are very important. Otherwise, you're doing great harm to them. You can't send, have somebody have surgery and send them back to their car, basically, or have chemo and send them back to their car. Oh, that's sad, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Maui oncologist Dr. Celia Choi, she's been working with the Pacific Cancer Foundation and Linda, and typically what they're seeing is patients, and when they come in, you kind of have these things called social determinants of health. That's asking who your support system is, where you're living, and all that type of stuff to kind of determine what your line of treatment will be. So Dr. Choi explains some of the barriers somebody who is homeless could face when they're trying to receive treatment. What are the factors that help patients make decisions about what kind of workup, such as imaging or blood tests they're going to have, what kind of treatment they're going to have, whether it is surgery or whether chemotherapy, whether it's medicine. And when you are unhoused or homeless, you run into so many barriers. One of them is that because um, you don't have a house, do you know that, you know, house is not a, some just a place that has a roof over your head. House is a place where you could feel safe, where you could recuperate. And if you don't have a physical address, let's say you have a surgery for your cancer, the home health company will not come to you. So let's say you had this huge surgery, whether you remove a piece of your gut, you know, a part of your body, they can't come and take care of you because they need a physical address. Let's say you need chemotherapy. And now we're using a lot of fancy chemotherapy that comes in pills that's delivered to your home. So guess what? Now all of a sudden, we don't have a place to deliver this life-saving medicine. So the solution that they're looking for on Maui that Popolo and the Pacific Cancer Foundation are working toward is a medical respite center. And right now, they've just been kind of tapping into a small housing fund, putting people in hotels to get the treatment that they need, whether that's pretreatment or uh, chemotherapy. That's what they've been doing. So they are currently working with the Kahale Akeola Homeless Resource Center on Maui to try and jumpstart a medical respite wing of the shelter. And Monique Barra is the executive director of the Kahale Akeola Homeless Resource Center. And she's already started brainstorming exactly how a cancer medical respite wing would look like. Our respite shelter is, is in a wing or on one side of a building. And that side has eight units, four studios, and four two-bedroom units. And for our respite shelters, uh, we have uh, the whole bottom floor on that side of the building is dedicated to respite, uh, you know, because our individuals like they aren't going to be able to climb upstairs. So we've dedicated those uh, four units to our respite shelter. And uh, with the Pacific Cancer Foundation, we would look at giving them a two-bedroom unit. We said we could place about four individuals in that, in that two-bedroom unit comfortably. We wouldn't want to put more than that. Um, and then if we could expand space to a studio as well to offer six beds, uh, then we, we definitely could look at doing that as well because we do have the space available right now. Um, and it's also conducive to having home health care come in if they need it because we're not, we're not a medical facility. We do have the bed space. We have the units, but we don't, we're not operating as a medical facility. So those types of services would be welcome and would be brought in for the individuals in the program. 
It's interesting. So, you know, you want to give people a fighting chance, mm-hmm. you know, but if they're in a circumstance and, and, you know, it doesn't bode well for a good outcome if they're battling all these things. No, not really. And what Linda has said is of the 10 people they have identified so far, about three have already passed away, mostly because they haven't gotten the treatment or care that they need in time. So they're trying to model their medical respite off of a Institute for Human Services uh, medical respite facility on Oahu. So usually per night, one of those beds costs about $150 a night. And those are just very temporary solutions to try to house people while they're undergoing treatment. Wow. Incredible story. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking to HBR Sabrina Bowden about uh, medical respite facilities and how one community on Maui is helping cancer patients uh, who are experiencing homelessness. Recent conviction of two Native Hawaiian men on Maui for a violent hate crime has been the topic of discussion around our state. HPR reporter Kuube Hirishi offered context in a different uh, dimension for the story on our program last week, and that stirred up some of our listeners. Uh, here's some of what we got in our talkback box. Uh, one listener wrote in, while the context surrounding Hawaiian heritage, word meetings, and perspectives on land contributes much to the historical background of the crime committed in Maui, what is glaringly missing in today's coverage was a straight and forceful condemnation of the violent act that was committed. Hawaiian people and culture is beautiful and worth celebrating, respecting, and knowing. And yet the people of Hawaii are not above prejudice, thinking, and behavior. Every human group has to do the hard work of loving those who are different than ourselves, without minimizing our own inappropriate mistakes, such as committing violence. Thanks again for your programming, uh, wrote in Drew from the Big Island. Another listener uh, said, uh, I wanted to say how disappointed I was to hear HBR's coverage today on the 2014 Maui hate crime. I consider myself a liberal and open to all perspectives, but to portray that incident as a clash of values or something to do with colonialism is beyond the pale. I saw the video online beating someone half to death with a shovel after they invited you to have a beer and talk about it is just vile. Whether hatred against an outsider or racist, the result was horrific. Why would HPR defend or rationalize such brutality or give airtime to those who would? Should we forgive Southern racists not wanting blacks in their neighborhood or communities in the Southwest trying to keep out immigrants? That was from Sean Belts. Another listener wrote in, I'm writing in appreciation and praise for the story about the hate crimes on Maui. Kuvehiri, she did an excellent job of reporting the complex context beyond the violent attack, interviewing a knowledgeable Hawaiian professor with family ties to the area and another professor with expertise in the colonial background of the term Haole gave a much broader understanding of the situation. Aloha Nui Loa from Georgia Acevedo. And we got this from another listener. Aloha Kako. I just want to thank you for your careful reporting of the so-called hate crime ruling at Kahukuloa. The structural violence of white supremacy and settler colonialism follows a logic of eliminating Kanaka Maoli from their homelands. This is what the word Haole meant in this case and what Alo, Ka'anohi, and Aki were resisting. The failure of other media outlets to include this important context demonstrates the persistence of white privilege in Hawaii. I teach classes in ethnic studies and plan to use a segment to discuss race in Hawaii. I hope you'll continue to, to report on issues in Hawaii with the same attention to our complex social relations Warmly, Kyle Kajihiro. Thanks for the feedback, everybody. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 792-8217.
now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. In today's quiz, we remembered the origin of the Queen Liliuokalani Trust. Just over a century ago, she created what is known as a deed of trust, which, among other things, established both the legal framework and financial backing for an institution dedicated to the benefit of orphan Hawaiian children. Today, that deed continues under the name of the Liliuokalani Trust and Children's Center. Its mission is to provide opportunities for Hawaiian children to realize their greatest potential, living healthy, joyous, and prosperous lives while contributing to their families, communities, and the world. The organization is focused on five areas, innovative programs, social-emotional support services, research and evaluation, organizational excellence and effective resource management. Hundreds of thousands of keiki have benefited from the trust since its inception in 1909, which was the answer to today's backyard quiz. Uh, We had no winners, so we stumped you on that one. But we're always looking for interesting facts and stories for our quiz. If you have one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hanahaoli School Professional Development Center, supporting the island's teachers who help to pave the path for a better future for the children of Hawaii. Learn more at hanahaoli.org slash pdc. University of Minnesota professor David Iona Chang sat down to write a book to document the ideas and perspectives of early Native explorers as they traveled the globe. He found records of the many male Hawaiian laborers and a few particularly adventurous ali'i, but then tucked away in the accounts of English sailors and ship captains in the late 1700s, he began to see the echoes of one Native Hawaiian woman's travels, referred to as Waini. Professor Chang spoke with HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote last March about putting the pieces of Waini's life together in order to chart her remarkable journey. His book is called The World and All the Things Upon It. I wondered, who is this person? What was she doing? And why are they calling her Waini? After I learned a little bit more about how they represented the Hawaiian language in English at this time, I realized that it was very likely an Englishman's pronunciation of Wahine. And I became fascinated by her. I read all the documents that I could uh, about her in accounts that were written by Englishmen. And what do we know of her experience? What What were her voyages like for her? After Captain Cook stumbled into Hawaii in the late 1770s, a few different holiday ships, European ships came through. And in the summer of 1787, one British ship was offshore at Kealikikua Bay. They, and what happened then is what often happened. People would get on va'a, they'd get on canoes, and they'd paddle out to trade or to try to get aboard the ship to see what was there to explore this really novel space. And she was one of those people. And so she paddled out, probably with goods to trade. And like some other people, she may have asked for passage aboard the ship. They were there, and and many people wanted to to, to explore this, to stay there. It was a very exciting experience, I think. And she apparently asked to stay. Now, the captain of that ship, a Captain Barkley, had very, and this was very unusual, he'd brought along his wife. This is novel. Generally, they just sailed by themselves. But he had brought along a young English woman who he'd married, and um, she took the person whose only name we have for her is Kavahine. He, she took Kavahine on as a maidservant. And so she sailed with this British trading vessel all the way to North America. They went up the northwest coast of North America along what we now call Vancouver Island, all the way up to Alaska, towards the Aleutian Islands, where they, the Englishmen were trading to get furs. Then the next part of the trip was to take those furs and sail all the way to southeast China to trade away the furs to get Chinese goods. And so she went all the way up the north coast of North America, all the way across the Pacific. She went to Macau. Macau is a Portuguese colony on the southeast coast, right near Hong Kong. And they landed there to trade away their goods, the furs, and get things. So one can imagine these extraordinary experiences. She was, first of all, seeing this very exotic British sailing vessel, different people speaking different languages with a different kind of sailing technology than the one that she knew as an OEV woman. 
and then sailing along the coast of North America, seeing native North America in all its glory and all its power at a time of affluence as trade is bringing in goods with, with the Europeans. And before the kind of stories of conquest and colonialism, which we now think of when we contextualize Native American history, she was in Native America before that. Then she sails all the way across the Pacific, that experience of the natural world, right, of being at sea, um, which is both a very Hawaiian experience, but also this is far to the north of where she and her ancestors had been, and sails across the North Pacific and then all the way down to what is now in, to China and Macau, and spends a long period there serving Francis Barkley, the captain's wife there, as her maidservant. So then we have to see what she saw there. Macau is an amazing city. It's a Portuguese trade colony, but there are people from all over the world there. There are Portuguese, there are English. Of course, there's many Chinese. There's people from the Middle East. There's people from Africa. There's Southeast Asians because it's this trade center where people are flowing and where the Chinese empire allow a lot of kinds of interactions by all kinds of people which would have been problematic in the heart of China itself. So this is a managed trade situation. So what that means is it concentrates all of these different kinds of people from all over the world. And Kavahine is in the middle of that. While she was in Macau, she grew ill. I don't know exactly what illness she caught, but many Native Hawaiians were growing ill at this time because... Our kupuna were being exposed to diseases to which they had no immunities. She was originally going to travel along with the Barclays, but instead she was left behind in Macau. One source says that she asked to return to Hawaii. Another source suggests that the Barclays kind of abandoned her. She may not have been useful as a servant anymore because she was ill. And, uh, but whatever it is, it's a tragic, tragic circumstance. Um, she gets aboard another British sailing vessel, which says that they will take her back to Hawaii. She's not the only Native Hawaiian aboard that ship. There's a man from Maui, there's a boy, and there's an individual named Kaiana Ahula, who we generally just refer to as Kaiana. And it's very touching because this ship is sailing along and Kavahine is getting sicker and sicker. She's on what turns out to be her deathbed aboard this ship. And Kaiana, who's this high-ranking ali'i, sits at her deathbed and cares for her and nurses her through her decline until she passes away and is deeply affected with sadness. And that's a very touching story to me because the stories that we have of our high-ranking ali'i from so long ago suggest that there is an unbridgeable gap between them and maka'inana, right? And, non, and non-chiefly people. And yet we see this extraordinarily high-ranking ali'i and this woman who's almost certainly of very humble origins coming together in a very affecting kind of event, as she was passing, she had collected along her travels a few things that were precious to her. Some beautiful women's clothing in the European style, a bottle, I think, of perfume, a hoop, a mirror, these sorts of things. And she gives some of them to Kayana to take back to Hawaii for her to bring to her family. They were gifts for her family. It's beautiful to me to think about what she wanted to bring home and to share with her ohana from her voyages. What was it like to resurrect one woman to find all these disparate sources and then put the pieces back together of her life? What did that, that feel like to realize, oh, this is, this is one life that I'm holding or recreating? It felt wonderful. It, was, it felt incredibly exciting, like a real privilege to be able to touch and represent a bit of the life of this kupuna, because representing the lives of Kanaka from a very long time ago is difficult. But to the extent that we have sources, so many of them are about the Inui, the highest of the high chiefs. 
And few of them are about maka'ainana, about what we call in English commoners. And when they exist, they tend to just be about a group of people. The maka'ainana did this or did that, right? But there's no individuals. And then to have a woman emerge from the sources. These are the lives that are the most poorly documented in the early period. The lives of non-elite wahine. To have an individual, to have actual stories about her, and then to have her engage in this extraordinary act of sailing across the Pacific and, and doing these things, it was thrilling for me to see that. It's the kind of thing that, as a historian, but also as a Hawaiian person, mean a lot to me. She was the first Hawaiian woman to travel on a Western vessel away. Others would follow. She's extraordinary because it's easier to tell stories about her, but she can represent the experience, the goals, the curiosity, the exploratory spirit, and the bravery of many Vahine in the Native Hawaiian past. That was author David Iona Chang and HPR Savannah Harriman Pote. It's a story we aired about the life of Kawahine, an explorer whose journey took her around the Pacific in the late 1700s. You can check out Chang's book titled The World and All the Things Upon It. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we take a closer look at priorities in Mayor uh, Rick Mangiardi's State of the City Address. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation uh, online. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.